All right. Thanks, Andrew. How about we open up our Bible to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 23 this morning. We're diving back into our, our series that uh, Joel mentioned earlier, Everything Sad is Untruth, a story about the big story. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Hidden Gospel, or the Hidden, sorry, Hidden Christmas, says that the gospel, because it is a true story, means that all the best stories, legends, and tales will be proved in the ultimate sense to be true. Because all the great movies and all the great stories have their origin in the gospel. I think that's why all the great Christmas movies like Die Hard and Gladiator and Braveheart are so compelling. I don't know what you're watching at Christmas, but these are the movies I'm pulling together this year as we think about redemption. This morning we dive back into Matthew 1, and uh, here we see the, the third part of our series, the story of how our Redeemer is born into this world. So let's look at it together. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, it did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we've already sang and, and prayed in the, in the midst of that song, come have your way with us. Prepare our hearts. Lord, we want to prepare room for you this morning. And so I pray as we uh, come before your word and listen and consider the truth of Christmas that we would, for the distracted among us, be compelled to see and, and feel afresh the wonder of the gospel I pray for those who feel bitter or cynical that you would pierce our heart and that you would show us that you've been pursuing us all along. And God, I pray for those who feel wounded and broken and hurting at Christmas. Pray that you would comfort and remind us of the truth of our redemption. God, we hear this story so often, and yet we pray this morning that it would fall fresh on us through the power of your spirit. Be with us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want you to imagine that you're having a, uh, I want you to imagine you're having a, a pool party in your backyard for your daughter's birthday, and it is all decked out, okay? You've got lanterns and balloons, you've got a big old buffet and punch bowls and charcuterie boards, and the guests are starting to arrive, and they're bringing gifts, and it's all laid out really beautiful. Everybody's pumped. And then all of a sudden, a Black Hawk helicopter descends over your backyard and these ropes fall down 
and these three army rangers start descending down the ropes with assault rifles and they start throwing out concussion grenades around the perimeter of your yard. They establish a defensive cordon around all of your guests. And now, as they're laying out this, this defensive cordon, your guests are freaking out. Your daughter's crying. The punch bowls have tipped over. Everybody is up in arms, and you are terrified. These, these guys come up to you with their night goggles on and their Kevlar vests, and their massive armament, and you scream at them, what are you doing here? What is this invasion of our privacy? This is egregious. Why are you here? And this military army ranger says, we're here to rescue you. You get on the phone with your lawyer immediately. Are you kidding me? This is terrible. You've ruined everything. Who do you think you are? Okay? I want you to imagine that scene in a different place. Okay? Some of you have seen the movie Black Hawk Down. This is a story of Mogadishu, Somalia in 1993. I want you to imagine that you're there in that situation now, that your name is Michael Durant, that you are a pilot for the Delta Force 1st Battalion, uh, Operation Delta, and you land in the middle of this city and your, your helicopter crashes and suddenly you are pinned down. There's helicopters all around you that have also crashed, and the followers of this terrorist warlord whose name is uh, Mohammed Farah Adid are closing in on you. They're firing at you. Ping, ping, ping. The bullets are hitting your chopper. You're wounded, and these rocket-propelled grenades are exploding all around the courtyard. When suddenly... A Black Hawk helicopter from the U.S. military begins to descend in front of you. And these Delta Force soldiers, they start coming down with their ropes. And they lay suppression fire and grenades around the courtyard to protect them as they land. How do you feel about that intervention in this situation now? Totally different. Tears of joy start coming down your face. Because you know that you were remembered, you were being rescued, you mattered, you were not forgotten. And someone with the power and the authority and the resources to extract you out of a desperate situation had arrived. They had come into your life. You know, our perspective at Christmas matters. How do you see yourself this morning? You see, we're seven days away from Christmas, and if you're honest, I want you to ask yourself, how does the message of Christmas land on me this morning? Is it an inconvenience? You know, all this hullabaloo, traffic, the stores are busy. I mean, I really appreciate the days off of work, but church and devotions, again, I've heard it all before. Can't we just get back to the presence can't we just get back to the candy canes? Others get angry at Christmas. The gall of the Bible and Jesus to tell me that I'm supposed to build my life around him and make him central to me? Are you kidding me? And then there are others who find the gospel to be the absolute sweetest, most beautiful and precious and life-transforming truth that they've ever encountered. Why the difference? So how about you this morning? 
You know, it really all depends, doesn't it, on how you see yourself in God's big story and what that story is all about. And the truth that we need to remember this morning is that until we have made an accurate assessment of our true spiritual condition, until we see ourselves as we really are, then we'll never be blown away by the wonder of the gospel at Christmas. You know, if what you really want out of life is just one big pool party, a nice retirement, happy and successful kids, then the gospel is just going to be, eh, marginal. You know, you might get through Christmas and think, it's fun social event, but it's not going to be a transformative to your heart. I think the biggest question that we can ask is, how do you, do you see yourself as someone who needs rescue? Last week, Andrew talked about part two of the story, the fall, which tells us that every one of us in this room this morning are in need of a rescue because of sin. Sin is that spirit within us that turns away from God, that instinctive rebellion that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, which brought with it a curse. Adam des- or Andrew described that curse in terms of relationships. Do you remember that? It's the reality uh, that I have a fallen and broken relationship to God. I don't really want God. I don't want him to exist in my life. I want to re- exist outside the reach and scope of his will and love. And it's a curse of fallen and broken relationships with others. I don't really want to love and serve and bless people around me. I don't feel free to do that. Instead, the drumbeat of my heart is continually me first. And it's the broken relationship with ourselves. I don't understand myself. I don't function correctly the way that I was made. I've lost my sense of identity and purpose. The image of, and glory of God that once defined me has been marred and lost. That's the curse that Andrew talked about, that has taken over mankind. It's rephrased this way in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do you see the world that way? Do you see yourself that way? Are you in need of rescue? Are you under a curse? You know, sometimes when I think about it, these words feel mystical and irrelevant for us, this idea of a curse. But the reality is we know it's true. If you lock your doors at night, then you know there's a curse. If you have insurance on anything, you know there's a curse. If you're a kid and your parents say, hey, you need to be kind to your brother and sister, and inside of you say, I know that's right, but I don't want to. You know there's a curse. And if you have ever suffered with an addiction to painkillers or alcohol or pornography, or if you have experienced divorce or you want to leave your spouse, or if you've lost a loved one, and the list goes on and on, you know that this world is not working the way that it is meant to work. I was in the barber shop a couple weeks ago. And the guy cutting my hair just made this declaration. I don't even read the newspaper anymore. It's too sad. It's too depressing. So let me ask you, is it just a few bad apples? Or is it pervasive? And I think we know the answer to that. Our question in this series is, can anyone do anything about it? 
Can anyone make everything sad untrue? Well, let me introduce you to Matthew chapter 1 and the story of Jesus Christ who has come into this world to redeem and to rescue and to save his people from the curse of sin. The word redemption means simply that we're regaining possession of something that was previously lost. And so most of us think about a coupon and trading that coupon in to get a chicken sandwich or a Frosty. You know, uh, we give something in exchange and what we get back is even better. But biblically speaking, the word redemption is far more than burgers and ice cream, okay? It's about people. It's about relationships. Yes, there's an exchange. Yes, what you get back is even better than what you had. But when the Bible talks about redemption, it's talking about this comprehensive plan where God pays the ransom to purchase us back from the effects of sin and death, frees us from our captivity to the destructive influence of an enemy, restores within us a new identity, a transformed heart, and secures a certain future in his presence for eternity. That's the wonder of Christmas. You know, this morning as we dive back into this, what I want you to see is that if someone is going to go on a dangerous rescue mission to ransom a person that's being held hostage by an enemy, they need two things. They need to want to do it, and they need the ability to pull it off. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that when Jesus enters the world, this passage features the ransom through the initiative of God and the names of God. The initiative of God tells us he wants to do it. He wants to redeem. And the names of God tell us that he has the power and the ability and the resources to do it. So let's look at that together. God's initiative. If two people become more and more separated, somebody's got to take the first step. There's got to be reconciliation, then someone has to go first. So who makes the first move in redemption? It's God. Matthew 1.18, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And then verse 22 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will be with child and she will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, the introduction of Jesus into the world starts with this announcement, and it's God who's doing the announcing. He is the one that's been planning and promising and fulfilling. It's God. God comes first. If you want to know the basic meaning of Christmas, it's that God comes to us. He initiates. He starts. He goes first. God's glory overshadows the womb of a 13 or 14-year-old girl before she had any kind of physical union with her fiancé. And the result of that is a child by the Holy Spirit. All that Mary and Joseph have been doing is planning a wedding. And yet behind the scenes, God is planning a much bigger wedding. The redemption of his bride. You know, the larger the party, the more preparation that's required. And what we see in Matthew is that this preparation has been going on since the beginning. In fact, in Isaiah, what he's quoting here. That verse comes 735 years earlier, this verse about the virgin having the child. 
spoken through the Isaiah the prophet. And all that is telling us is leading up to this redemption. It's this reality that we're not seeking God. God is always seeking us first. We don't find God. God finds us. We only love because he first loved us. And so what Matthew is telling us here is that this redeemer is not only willing to save, this plan of action has been coming together for a long, long time. You think about the covenants in the Old Testament. They were like these signpost promises that God was making to his people with Abraham and Moses and David, each one of them in a unique way, preparing the way for what Jesus was about to do. And then all of these come to fruition in this Christmas reality for which God has always been at work, taking the initiative, moving the redemptive plan forward. And what that tells us is that there has not been one moment since the fall of Adam and Eve and their failure in the garden where he has not thought about your rescue and planned your ransom and thought about what it would take to reunite you to him. This God's initiative towards you, his continual initiative towards you, though it might be oblivious and you might be non-responsive and you might even be rebellious, that he keeps coming after you, shows you his heart and his desire for you. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's Christmas. That's what's pleasing to him. This is what he desires, to send his son as a ransom for you so that at just the right time in history, His love could be fully revealed to you. I've told this story before, but when Melissa and I first started uh, on staff with Campus Outreach in 2001, we went to the University of Georgia. One of our supporters called us over the summer and said, hey, there is a young man that is coming to Georgia, and his name is Nick, and Nick lives near us in Augusta, And his father has recently passed away from a massive heart attack. And yet his father's wishes would be that he would still go to Georgia. And so he has decided to enroll, even though he is busted and broken up. I said, Ellen, is there anything that I can do? This is our supporter. And she said, well, I would love for you to meet him and for you to share the gospel with him. And I'm praying to that effect. And I said, that'd be great. Do you have his number? She said, I don't. Uh, I'll try to get it for you. I said, do you know where he's going to live on campus? She said, I have no idea, but I'll try to look for you. And so with that, I prayed and then forgot about Nick. For the next three or four weeks, we were busy getting ready for the semester. We knew about four or five people as we were moving to Athens. One of them was a guy that had been on a beach project, and his name was Brad Brookshire. The only way I knew to start ministry on a new campus at a huge campus like Georgia was to get one guy and to say, can I come into your dorm and we start a flag football to get team together? Maybe we can meet some guys on your floor and, uh, and then as we're building relationships with them, we could start a Bible study and share the gospel. And Brad said, I'd love to have you. I said, where are you living? He said, seventh floor, Russell Hall. There's probably 20 dorms at Georgia. And Russell Hall has 10 stories to it. 
1,000 students in it, and he lived on floor number seven. There's probably 25 kids on that hall, and I thought, that's where we're going to start. So we start, Brad's an RA, Brad and I start meeting kids on his hall. We start recruiting to this flag football team. And one of the, one of the days, I said, Brad, I feel like I've gotten to know just about everybody on the floor in the last week or so, but there's this one guy, your next door neighbor, he's a little quiet. What is his story? And he said, well, that's Nick. And Nick's dad just passed away, probably about four or five weeks ago. So he's been a little distant from everybody else. But I'd love to introduce you to him. Could not believe it. My mouth hit the floor. You're telling me that out of the 50,000 students on campus, that God put Nick next door to the one guy that I knew going in to the University of Georgia blew me away. And so I obviously I met Nick, and when I told him this story, we sat down for lunch. I said, Nick, I don't know what you think about God, but I got to tell you this story. And his mouth hit the floor, and he said, Andy, I don't know what to think. All I know is that for the last five or six weeks, I haven't pursued God at all. I thought he had totally forgotten about me. He hasn't, I haven't sensed his presence for one second. And now I'm beginning to realize that perhaps all along, he was pursuing me. He's coming after me. And I don't know what to think about that. We were floored. And what I learned at that moment and what he learned is that when you are the bullseye target of God's redemptive plan, it will blow you away. And you will see afresh the wonder and the joy and the delight in God pursuing his bride and redeeming us. This is the, the pursuing heart of God our Father. You know, Isaiah 9 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. He will establish his kingdom, for the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. God initiates. He wants to. He loves you. Secondly, this passage gives us the hope of redemption in the names of Jesus. The names of Jesus that Matthew reveals shows us that he has the authority and the power and the resources to secure the ransom. Not only does he want to do it, he can do it. And the names of God show us that he can do it. You know, in the ancient Near East, names were a big deal. Okay, kings didn't get their names because their mom and dad just liked the sound of it. They didn't get their name from a pro athlete that they liked or an uncle they thought was cool. In the Bible, your name was your identity. And that identity was established primarily when someone gave you their name, it meant this person has authority over you. And they have primary responsibility for your care and your stewardship. And so when God tells Adam to name the animals, it's not just because God has run out of ideas. It's because he wants Adam to know that they are going to be in authority and stewarding all of creation. Did you know in the Old Testament, whenever a king was conquered by another king, that conquering king renamed the king that he had just defeated. And so the name showed you, whoever named you was in authority over you. And then secondly, your name told you what your purpose was. It told you why and what your life was to be about. And so the Bible is saying that if you know those two things, then you have your identity. I love that scene 
right at the Last Supper, as Jesus is spending time with his disciples, it says that he knows that he's about to be uh, handed over to Satan, that he's been betrayed. And yet it says that knowing that he had come from God and knowing that God had put all authority before him and that he was going back to God, he rose from supper, took off his robe, and washed their feet. There's this incredible security that Jesus has, this inner confidence, this stability, because he knows who he is, and he knows whose he is. He knows who's, in, who's named him, and he knows why he's here, and he knows where he's headed. That's the strong sense of identity and inner core that Jesus had, what he meant to give us as well. And so what are the names that Matthew gives us? What do they tell us about our Redeemer? Well, first, it says that he is the Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came to be. Christ is not his last name. We know that. It's a title, which means the anointed one or the Messiah, the promised deliverer of God's people and the one in whom all God's promises are to be fulfilled. So to be anointed for a role means that you are furnished with all the resources and power to be able to do the job, the role that you're called to do. And what is Christ being appointed to do? Well, Luke 4 tells us. Jesus gets the scroll of Isaiah. He rolls it out in front of the crowd. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, I and I alone have been furnished with all the resources of heaven to spread the good news of the gospel, to bring physical and spiritual and emotional and psychological healing to every broken person, to set those who are spiritually in bondage free. Those who can't see, they'll see again. If you are hungry and thirsty, you will be satisfied in me. And this is what we see happen as Jesus Christ is let loose on planet Earth. Everywhere he goes, broken bodies made new. People who are in bondage set free. Dead people come back to life because Aslan is on the move. This is the beauty and the power of the Christ, the deliverer, the anointed one. Number two, what do we learn about the names of Jesus? Jesus is the name that's given in verse 21. He is to be given the name Jesus because as the angel of the Lord tells us, he will save his people from their sin. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yah, which means God, and Shua, which means to save. Yahshua or Joshua, the Greek version of that is Jesus. Jesus is named that because his express purpose, the purpose of his life is to save his people from their sins. You know, redemption only makes sense if what, he, if what God is about is rescuing people from their sins. Jesus didn't come at Christmas to like model generosity and inspire humility and to help us to be kind to our neighbors. He came to save his people from their sins. I don't need a new razor. I don't need an Apple watch, new pair of shoes. Do you know what I need at Christmas? I need to be saved from my sins. That's what I need. This is what Jesus has come to do. John 1, 29. 
Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John the Baptist identifies him. That's because in the Old Testament, the only way that your sin could be atoned for or forgiven was through the blood sacrifice of an animal. It was taking your hand and putting it on the head of a goat, symbolizing the transfer of your guilt onto this spotless, perfect sacrifice. It's the only way that they could stand before God, the only way they could come into their presence. But when Christ comes, when Jesus comes, he says, all of that is done. It's just been a symbol. But what it's been pointing to is the reality of full cleansing that I bring because I am able to save completely. Look at Hebrews 7. The author of Hebrews says that he is able to save completely, not symbolically, not metaphorically, but completely. Those who come to God through him. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself. And therefore, he is able to become the sacrifice for us. This is redemption. This is a verse we talked about earlier in Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You know, the story of Christmas can't really be told without pointing ahead to Easter. Easter is where Christ becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sins, where he is hung on the tree and the curse gets lifted. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. And so the name Jesus tells us, what he has come to do. To redeem his people, to save his people, to ransom his people. And only a sinless substitute can take our place. Let me listen to this quote from Leon Morris. He says it so well, summarizes all of what we've been saying. So follow along. Leon Morris in his commentary says, when a man sinned, he became the slave of evil. He cannot break free. This is precisely the situation that the ancient world saw as a calling, as calling for an act of redemption. We who belong to God have gotten into the power of a strong enemy from which we cannot break free. If I can say it reverently, God, if he wants us back, must pay the price. And the great teaching of the New Testament is that God has paid that price. He has redeemed him. Paul is saying that Christ's death on the cross meant that he bore the curse that would have otherwise rested on us. He suffered in our stead. He took what was coming to us. Praise God, for Christ has become our Redeemer. That's Christmas. Hey, last name, last one, Emmanuel. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you know why our redemption what we get back in redemption is so much better than what we had before. It's because God is with us. He is now in our hearts, residing with us, sharing. We get to share in the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Galatians chapter 4 says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are renamed 
We have a new name. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's the goal of redemption. God with us. We get God. God in us. So the glory of redemption is not just that my sins are forgiven and that I get a new body one day when I die. But what I get is God. God with me. Me with God. This is Christ sharing the very relationship with the Father, with us, that he has had for eternity. This is what he's giving us. We're adopted into the family, renamed, repurposed, new hearts in Christ, which God himself dwelling in us by his Holy Spirit. We close with the story of Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities. It's probably one of the greatest stories of sacrificial love in the English language. If you don't know that story, if you're not familiar with it, it's set in the middle of the French Revolution. And there's this uproar of these revolutionaries who sort of taken over France. And what is happening is that they've overthrown the royal government. And anyone that is associated with the government, anyone that has uh, connections to the royal bloodline or is an aristocrat, they are immediately sentenced to the guillotine. They are jailed, put in prison, and hung or have their heads chopped off. Well, in the midst of all of this terror, there is a man named Charles Darnay. Charles Darnay is a young man who has a wife and a daughter named Lucy. And uh, it is thought and accused of him that he has had some kind of association with the royal blood, with the royal family, and he is condemned to die. And as he is sitting in a prison cell waiting for the night to pass and the morning to come where he's going to be loaded up on a cart with all the other prisoners and taken to the guillotine, uh, something unthinkable happens. There's this man named Sidney who happens to look a lot like Charles. And he comes to Charles' cell and Sidney drugs Charles. And he steals his clothes and they trades clothes with him. And then he tricks the guards into thinking that he is Charles and that Charles is Sidney. And so Sidney walks Charles out to the guards and the guards end up carrying Charles down the steps out of the prison and then into a carriage where he is reunited and restored to the relationship that he has with his wife and his daughter. All the while, Sidney Carton remains alone in the room waiting to die in his place. And so when the morning comes and Sidney is loaded up on the cart, there's a little girl that recognizes that's not Charles. And she says to him, are, are you going to die in his place? And he tries to hush her. He says, shh, shh, hush, yes. Yes, and for his wife and daughter as well. And she says, well, you brave man, will you hold my hand? And he says, hush, yes, and I will hold it to the very end. Let me ask you this. If you were to come to Jesus and you were to place your hand in his and you were to say to him, have you died for me? The apostle Paul tells us, that the answer Jesus would give you, he would look you square in the eyes and he would say, yes, my child, 
This is the very reason for which I have come. And I won't just hold your hand, but I will put you on my shoulder. And I will walk with you into death itself, not so that you would remain there, but so that you would come out on the other side, free and experiencing the life for which you were made. And so I want to ask you this morning, as we prepare our hearts for this Advent season, Christmas next week, would you come again to him? Would you come to your Redeemer and grab his hand and let his work cover you in his blood? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, the wonder of the gospel, the great redemptive plan that you have set in motion from eternity past because of your love, because of your passion. You have sent your very son to be born into this world, to identify with a people, to produce a work of obedience and righteousness on our behalf. And then to be hung on a tree and to become the curse for us. God, would you open our eyes to our need for rescue? Would it stabilize us and secure us and give us a new identity and a new outlook and a new posture as we're sent out into this world to be ambassadors of Christmas? God, help us to sing well even now along with the angels this great and glorious truth of your love Come in the person of Jesus at Christmas. Amen.